Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. How's that? Yeah. I can't hear a damn thing, but... You can't? No. Turn up your phone Yeah, wonderful. Mike's thrilled that he called into this show. I mean, he could have been, you know, just spending time with the kids, the grandkids. But no, he's calling LR Radio. I can't hear it. <laughs> try to get you some phones. You're on. By the way. I'm, I'm on, by the way? Yeah. Well, that's really nice to know. <laughs> oh, right there. What? So you... Ladies and gentlemen... Oh, there we are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Take 17. <laughs> Live from the gleaming, streamlined studios, the state-of-the-art engineering excellence of Outlaw Radio USA. See, see, Burl, if you weren't such a professional uh, on the air, yeah. people would think this was some rinky-dinky college thing. Yeah, they would. <laughs> I can't blame them. <laughs> all right, shall we start at the top? Yeah, Mark, is that yours? Yes, it is. Okay, good. okay shall we start all over again? Yes! Okay. <laughs> 
Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Yeah, he doesn't want to take the credit. Who can blame him? <laughs> They're going to take back your first phone. <laughs> I'm sitting in Howard Lapidus' chair. I don't know where the hell he is. Only a third class Oh, God, no. Really? A third endorsed. Jeez. I had a first, but that mattered. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here. Yeah, and we got a U.S. Marshal who's actually uh, Mike Pizzi. Welcome to the show, Mike. You were on the show, uh, oh, gee, for about uh, 20 minutes four, four years ago. <laughs> Thank I, you. I never forgot you. And the, the reason I never forgot you was because my son's favorite TV show was one that you were uh, you trained all the guys on. It was something about U.S. Marshals arresting people. Oh, I thought I thought you liked you yeah, liked him because yeah. he was chasing you all these years. Okay. <laughs> now to make Mike feel at home, I have some eggplant appetizer, and I'm going to hit you with a broom. That'll bring back happy memories. <laughs> now the reason I say that, ladies and gentlemen, is that Mike, uh, aside from being famous as a U.S. marshal and doing some really incredible things that we'll talk about, had I think uh, a, a fascinating childhood. Tell us a little bit about your parents or your grandparents and being hit over there with a broom. <laughs> well, uh, of course, I was born in 1941 in Brooklyn, and I lived in the same apartment as my grandparents with my mother and father. So, you know, tight quarters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my grandmother and my grandfather passed when I was three, but my grandmother never really learned how to speak any English. So when my friends used to come over when I got to be a teenager, uh, we would just speak freely in front of her. And uh, <laughs> my mother comes home from work, and I'm not going to say the word. You can say it. You're home. on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she, she, my grandmother specifically says the F word right out. And my, <laughs> She's finally <laughs> learning English. <laughs> so my mother said... You taught my mother how to curse? What, I, and she started hitting, The more she hit me off the head with the broom, the more my grandmother kept saying, what does this word mean in Italian? And she said the F word out. Well, see, you, you educated your grandmother. <laughs> yeah, and it was a, this was um, pretty, uh, pretty much different from what most people experience, I guess. We we would walk to school, you know, not uphill both ways, but we'd walk to school <laughs> uh, back and forth for lunch and all. And, of course, my mom was out working, and my grandmother would get me my lunch. But since she was a diabetic, uh, she was eating escarole and uh, some cheese in a basket that was so bland, <laughs> oh, you know, you, you just couldn't get it down. And I, and I was, you know, just wishing I could be in a school with the poor kids eating the peanut butter and
the same thing. Yeah. And it was uh, it was shocking to me. It was uh, it was almost uh, surreal for, because I had seen and done so much in the four some odd years, and and coming back, you know, I I, I was different. I I was actually different, and uh, and and they didn't look to me like they were any different at all. Well, and you'd just, had experiences, your body had buffed up, and your mind had buffed up, too. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, it was amazing to me uh, to see them, and almost felt like strange, uh, even uh, trying to communicate. But What's, uh, what's this time frame? Uh, sorry? What, what year was this? Oh, uh, well, I, I went in in ninth, the late 1958. And in 1963, I got out. So you missed the Vietnam conflict? No, I, I no, we, I didn't make Vietnam because Vietnam wasn't even on the horizon when we got discharged. We, we had just been yeah. through the miss, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and most of us spent a little more than four years on active duty. Um, and I, at this point in time, had two kids. And by the time we heard anything about Vietnam, I had been out about eight months. Mm. And I tried to go back in at that time uh, and went uh, to a recruiting office, and they wouldn't even give me my NCO corporal stripes back. They wanted to make me a lance corporal. I said, you know, we were starving to death on corporal's pay. How am I going to make it on lance corporal's pay? You won't. Uh, I just couldn't do it. We're living in the military back at that time, trying to, to maintain a family was almost impossible. We were starving. That's strange. You'd think that the government would take better care of the, uh, no, the service people. No, we had people. nothing. Actually, it w turns out to be a blessing in disguise that, you know, if you didn't have a certain rank, you lived off the base. Yep. Because they now know that the water uh, on the base, where I spent about 18 months, was uh, contaminated. Oh, great. Cancer oh, jeez. <clears throat> and there's all kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, talk about it now. And, of course, they want people to sign up to say they were, uh, they were living on the base during that time. But the water's can cancer-causing. So we were lucky. And I had a, a child born at the Naval Hospital on the base. And uh, we, we got a little lucky there, too. But as far as no telephone, no television, uh, you're just surviving, barely surviving. Well, that, uh, that doesn't sound like a good recruiting poster. <laughs> no, that really wasn't a good I'm pretty sure they're doing a little bit better now. But, yeah, I think there's some things that uh, you learn later on in life about the government that's uh, a little shocking. Yeah. Well, once you're on the inside, you see things that, uh, you know, uh, kind of shake your faith sometimes. Yeah, well, we, you know, even uh, me uh, as uh, not being so formally educated, I, you know, you thought about the government, you thought about, you know, secret agents and uh, all kinds of equipment, and uh, we had none of that. There was absolutely, no, we used our own cars. When I first became a deputy marshal, <laughs> uh, we used our own cars to to, to do everything: uh, surveillance, transport, whatever we had to do. And it's just uh, amazing that we didn't even have uh, government equipment. That is so, strange. Mark C. G. Boyer has a question for you. So, how do you yeah. go from the streets of Brooklyn, 
uh, having uh, very little faith or trust in law enforcement and authority to joining the Marines and then becoming a marshal? Well, a friend, a, 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 a fellow who I got very close to, uh, John Brophy, who I run into by accident uh, while I'm uh, in the trucking business, uh, kind of invited me to take a look at the job. And he and I had been corporals in the same unit in the 8th Marines, and we uh, we met at another Marine's house, uh, and he was he kind of gave me an invitation, and I took him up on it, and he introduced me to um, his chief, the hiring practices were much different then. Um, I got interested in the job. I thought it was sounded pretty good to me, but I was a little disillusioned as we got started because there was no training. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, we kind of they kind of took your military background, and uh, so we was on the job training. And I, I think I tell a story in the first part of the book about. I didn't even have a, a weapon, and uh, so I'm, I'm there on my first day, and uh, my friend uh, John gets an assignment, and we're going to go pick up this dangerous uh, prisoner whose life is in danger, and so he slips me a gun under the table, and off we go, the two of us in his car. Well, a, cu- a couple of marshals and some FBI people fly in this uh, prisoner from Atlanta, and we take over. We don't have a backup. We have nobody else with us. And we're going down a Bell Parkway in, in Brooklyn, which is a crowded highway. And and John is kind of saying, you better keep your eye on the right side. He said, I, I don't like the way this car's coming up on the side. So now I have the gun between my legs. As I'm rolling down the window, and John takes the car and veers to the left, the other guy goes to the right, so we, we figure we're in the clear. I bring, we get to the jail. I bring the, bring the prisoner into the jail, and I know how to handle the weapon. I go to unload the weapon. There's no bullets. <laughs> how helpful. So I'm like, uh, well, I'll wait till we get outside. And, of course, I give John an earful. And he's, no, nah, it's my fault. I said, what is this, a test? I mean, are you crazy? <laughs> I think I'm going back to trucking. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it just, uh, it, that was my head start. That's the way we got started. But uh, it, it got a little better. Um, the training didn't take place for me till about, I was about six months on the job. And we had like two weeks outside the Atlanta penitentiary uh, of basically shooting and people telling you how the job was, but uh, we didn't really learn much uh, of anything new, but then we got that behind us. But well, it was certainly, more or less uh, everything was on a job training. So, But this was all attached to the court system at this time, right? Well, the marshal's job is, is, is all court-related. In other words, the function of the U.S. marshal is in support of the U.S. district courts. So we've always been part of the U.S. Justice Department. You might say the enforcement arm of the Justice Department. But the main function of the marshal has always been in support of the U.S. District Courts. Hmm. So if you, could, if you hold that thought for a moment, um, if the court has a defendant who doesn't show up, issue a warrant. That's court-related. That warrant comes to the marshal, failure to appear.
if uh, if a court sentences somebody and he escapes, that's uh, he's committed uh, by by the U.S. District Court, and if he escapes, we'll go after him. Yeah, that's like if that he, TV show my son was really into. <laughs> yeah, if 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 somebody's on parole as a result of a sentence or probation and violates, that comes back to us. So th- that's kind of a definition of the relationship between the U.S. Marshals and the district courts. Now, how is it that the U.S. Marshals, and I'm referring now to the story about Mrs. Ryan, lovely Mrs. Ryan, the Nazi war criminal. Right. Uh, how did you wind up, I mean, what's the relationship there that you're the one that goes and gets the, in fact, the, the first Nazi war criminal deported back to Germany? Well, at that, at that time, that... That particular, those particular operations dealing with war criminals were handled by Maine Justice, a unit within Maine Justice. And when the time came, and a lot of the background work was done by a section in Maine Justice, but when the time came... I knew a lot more about it later on. I, mean, I knew what I was after, and I knew this was serious business, but I learned later on in life, you know, how serious she was. As, as oh, she was a real of, uh, horrible piece of work, that woman. She did such horrible things. I was reading in the book, and I'm going, my God, how can a human being behave the way that woman did? Yeah, and they know were empowered. The hardest part about that whole thing is her whole demeanor had apparently changed while she was living in lovely Queens, New York. And the neighbors were kind of like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing to Mrs. Ryan? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Uh, Let me explain something to you. And I just, I had to to go outside and kind of like try to calm the crowd down. So did you say, listen, Mrs. Ryan is not the sweet little old lady you think she is. No, but if you took one look at her, you you wouldn't think she was so sweet. I mean, she looked like the, 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 the... the poster girl. <laughs> the Nazi, Nazi poster girl. girl. <laughs> well, that reminds me of QB4, Clean Bench 4. Right. Uh, and, you know, how, how the doctor changed what he did and how he treated people once it was over. Right. I, I yeah, That was written by Leon Iris, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember that story. Un- unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it gave uh, him one dollar, one pound. yeah. <laughs> What he wanted him worth. a pound for his legal action. Right, right. Yeah, well, uh, she was, uh, that, I was uh, very impressed with that story. It's, uh, congratulations. Anytime someone catches a Nazi war criminal, I'm impressed. <laughs> well, you know, at this point, and, there are not too many left. No. <laughs> I, and I actually didn't find out till I was writing the book that she was the first one ever extradited uh, out of the United States. What did they do to her when they got her back to Germany? Well, I, I think they sentenced. She she had some sort of a lifetime sentence. Uh, I had heard that the, her leg was amputated at one point in time from some sort of disease that she had, 
but I, I'm kind of lost track of her. Good, it's a good person to lose track of. Yeah, I yeah, I really didn't have that much. I mean, I only, I I, re, I got reinterested in the story after when I started writing a book and make sure I had my facts correct, but. Uh, a little of that research was done later on, not beforehand. Yeah, and that was another problem with the government. You kind of like, you, you kind of got jobs to do, but nobody really gave you the full story. You know? <laughs> Why are we arresting this little old lady? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, 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 you got involved in some things, and I just a story that's not in the book that comes to mind. Brophy and I, I guess it was in the mid '60s. Um, we we got a, a job from uh, the higher authority, a, a chief deputy at the time, to uh, get these explosive um, explosive uh, fireworks, uh, which which exploded on impact. Oh, how nice! And they were kind of new at the time. I suppose now they've kind of been around for a while. But I I yeah I had a little bit of a background in demolitions in the Marines, and I'm like you know. What do you mean? What are we getting? So we got to go get these things, and we got to seize them. We got to bring them in. So here we are driving around in New York City with a. a, a, a he had a station wagon packed full of exploding, <laughs> <laughs> exploding fireworks that explode on impact. Supposing somebody crashes into the back of us. Oh, they'd be blown to hell. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, and I recall a, a couple of situations where some deputies got themselves in a world of hurt. Uh, didn't know enough about how to do, uh, for example, the end of the case would be maybe an order of destruction on some fireworks. And this uh, deputy, I have, I'm pretty sure he came out of Ohio, uh, had asked uh, Army folks, how do, I, uh, how do I destroy these fireworks? And somebody told him, well, you put, get a 55-gallon can of uh, gas, uh, you put some gasoline in it, and you, know, you start a fire, and... Uh, well, the damn thing exploded and blew his leg off. Oh, jeez. I mean, it was uh, it's just a horror show. So so it, we were kind of learning as we were going, but at some sometimes that learning was at some very serious expense. Did, uh, did you get the chance to change some of that and create some I, proper training? I, hopefully, I, I did make that kind of an impact. I, 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 first of all, I... Before you can start giving orders, you got to learn how to take them. So I try to do my best to learn the job from the people that were there. Most of them had been old-time cops. Uh, some of them had been on the job for a while. Uh, you know, there were different terms you used for those, those old-timers, but some of them spent more time trying to get out of work than they did trying to do the work. So Brophy and I, John Brophy and I, started to get the nickname the Whiz Kids because after we were finished with all the work we had to do on a daily basis, we would grab a couple of fugitive cases and go out at night. Now here we are, out at night in uh, places like uh, the Bronx and Harlem and, and uh, some really rough neighborhoods, no radio communications, no base stations, no cell phones, no beepers. You carry dimes at the f at the time, ten cents. You can make a phone if you could find a phone booth that worked. <laughs> and <laughs> no computers. And you're out there. And just what we did was we just ground pounded. You know, we kind of 
knocked on a lot of doors and asked a lot of questions, and usually we'd find the guy we were looking for, you know. And uh, and that was kind of the way we started. And hopefully we made things a lot better for the people that followed us because we did make some changes. So uh, You're married at this point with the kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was married. And so that's kind of rough, you know, being on, you know, out Ooh. all day. A lot of guys uh, didn't really have great home lives. Um, I had a, 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 a really great wife. I can't say I was the best husband and father uh, in the world because, to be honest with you, this work for the government uh, made for a tough home life. Uh, one of the reasons I, you know, I... I try to promote the book a little bit uh, to people that have been on a job was to say I'd like the families to know some of the things that we were going through to make things better. You know, it wasn't so easy. But well, uh, it's, it's kind was, of uh, uh, tell me if this is the the case, Mike. That quite often uh, people who are in law enforcement or whatever it is they're in don't talk about when they get home. They don't. They don't want to talk about what they did that day. Well, you, you quite honestly, if you did and you brought it all home. I don't think you'd ever be able to eat or sleep. I mean, I, I when when it wasn't a, but a few years later when we started uh, taking over the anti-air piracy program at the airports, and I got to be uh, the uh, deputy in charge, I don't think I had one single night off where I didn't get a call, where I didn't have a problem, where I, I I didn't end up throwing my plate of food in, in the kitchen sink, uh, you know it just uh, it never ended. It never ended. I hope you were paid well. Uh, no, we weren't paid well. well. <laughs> I knew that was I knew that was going to be a response. <laughs> that was going to set you up there a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, you know I, I was a trucker making about eight thousand dollars, and I became a deputy making about five. Oh, that's a step up. A year. <laughs> a year. My God. <laughs> You know, I, I just, uh, I always like to promote my own stuff. I just did a book about the uh, uh, Crooked Cops in New York uh-huh. with Kenny Urell, uh, Betrayal in Blue, about uh, he and Michael Dowd, who were the, supposedly oh, yeah. the two most corrupt hold up, hold cops. And 22 minutes. He's keeping track how long it took me to hype my own stuff. Uh, but uh, they were making, uh, what was it, uh, uh, something like... Uh, Thirteen thousand a year as cops, but they were making eight thousand a week working for the drug cartel. Yeah, what well, now, now you see where they that precinct in East New York where they work was part of our territory. When I was in Brooklyn, that was one of the hot spots where we had to work. So, so when, when you see them saying they they were giving up information that the feds were coming, that was us that was coming. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so nice guys, you know, <laughs> terrific guys, you know, but. Uh, yeah, I, most like I, most of the most of the police were totally honest. I won't say they were one hundred percent truthful, but they were totally honest. I would say if they seen something really nasty, they'd have probably done something. But for the most part, people were looking the other way. But we were caught between a rock and a hard place. If we couldn't rely on uh, brother officers from the from the New York City Police Department, we were in deep trouble. As a matter of fact, early on, before we even got into having any intelligence, Brophy and I would walk into a precinct, wherever the fugitive may have been, and ask them if we could, you know, look in their known gambler files. Uh, that was the best source of intelligence we had at the time. 
Hmm. It was just, and then of course we'd pick a name out uh, in the files. It was, let's say a nickname, Pinhead Jones. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So so we pull up on a corner and there's six or seven guys and we ask them if they seen Pinhead Jones around. But we really weren't looking for Pinhead Jones. We wanted to just see who was in that crowd. Ah. You know, so that's the kind of, <laughs> no backup, <laughs> no, no reinforcements, you know. Uh, you could call for backup, but sorry, that number's been disconnected. The, <laughs> the what? So you could call for backup, but that number's been disconnected. Yeah, well, you didn't have a phone. <laughs> or a radio. Pardon me, bad guys. Hold up. Don't shoot us just yet. I have to make a phone call. Yeah, let me they find finally, a booth that works. There finally came a time when they, they, they decided they were going to give us some radios. And they, they, they gave us a radio that was called the Pull and Run. It was uh, the size of a loose-leaf book, and uh, you, you, you locked it into your car, and then when you had to leave the car, they wanted you to take it out. So now you're walking around with this radio in your hand. <laughs> you know, just the craziest thing. Crazy. So uh, I was just reading about in your book about uh, a man on a plane that threatened a woman and a baby on the aircraft that was about to depart. Yeah. So that was... Um, uh, you, you know, uh, the airports was a whole different world for us. And uh, matter of fact, if you if you have ever worked around an airport, it's like another city. But um, we would, uh, I thought we were in Fat City when I when I said I needed thirty guys. Uh, we only had about seven. I, I said I'd probably get by with fifteen, but I'll ask for thirty. So they give me the thirty. Imagine thirty guys for JFK and LaGuardia, and I think I'm in heaven. Um, <laughs> But uh, on, on this particular night, we get a call. I'm the only one that could respond. So I, I get on the aircraft, and I've got now 230 people or so looking at me as I go to the back of the aircraft where this guy's, it looked like he just fell off an LSD truck. <laughs> and he had said some pretty crazy things to this woman and child. And I, I kind of... I kind of didn't want to use too much muscle, but I needed him to get moving. And you know how tight the seats are. Anyway, yeah. he leaned a little forward. I managed to twist his claws around in his uh, to, uh, on his back, and, and, I, and I pulled him out of the seat. And I run him down the aisle. I'm behind him now, and I could just see 200 people's eyes on me. <laughs> and, I, and I get him off the aircraft. I don't have an office at the airport. So there's a, a flight... Uh, somebody from the airline I said what's in that room right there it's our liquor lock open the door I open the door he opens the door and I, I push the guy in I said well this is now my office <laughs> I said, you can move the liquor out or you can leave it here it's my office so that's how we wound up with an office at the airport in Eastern Airline boy they really uh, know how to take care of you uh, yeah I, uh, I, 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 I actually you couldn't arrest this guy really the plane took off the lady didn't give a statement he really, I said, the best thing I think could, I could do is get him out of the airport. <laughs> what am we going to do? So, so that's what I did. In other words, it was like I posted him from the town. You know, I was the marshal posting him from town. So I got him out of the airport, only to be called sometime the next day by the Port Authority that the guy was around again. You know, oh, geez. Hey, but he wasn't getting on any more aircraft. Now tell him to take the train. Um, <laughs> Do the marshals still have a presence at airports? No. So TSA? No. Uh, no, that's 
that whole operation is run by TSA. But but at this time, there was a group of people called air marshals. It was part of the FAA. Right, right. But everybody was uh, was donating men to this project or, or, or agents. And we, our job was doing the ground security before the flight took off. But if an air marshal didn't show up, we had to replace them. So uh, don't you know that a couple don't show up when there's a bomb threat and a hijack threat on a plane? Yours truly now is flying that flight. You know, that was one of my uh, a nightmare flight for me. But uh, and, and don't you know the guy that they were concerned about, or where they believed they had a threat, uh, ended up uh, trying to smoke some hash in the bathroom. And I locked them up. <laughs> but, you know, during this time, we're getting alerts on a daily basis that the Palestinian Liberation Front may do this and that, and planes were being hijacked during this time, but... Thankfully, none while we were while uh, while we were doing the uh, the preliminary searches. Well, no self-respecting terrorist is going to Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's funny because uh, around this time uh, we start getting. Remember, we're we're doing flights that are leaving. We're starting to pick up a lot of people transporting dope. You know, the guy becomes a suspect. And 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 he, then when you get to search him, he's he's got dope on him, and and so these people were actually heading out of town, and so I started keeping track and charting where they were heading, and I'm going back now to remember around 1970, 71, too. Yeah, they were all heading for college towns. Oh, duh. <laughs> and um, don't you think we have a problem with uh, opiates and? And uh, hard drugs in colleges now. Yep. I mean, so we. This was all the way back, and I, I had uh, kept the charts. And by this time, the DEA had had gotten uh, uh, a little more into the act, and and uh, I was sharing that information with them. They loved it uh, because this was a whole different idea. Usually, when you when you had a drug case, you try to work it back up the chain. And this was working it the opposite way. But by telling what the quality and the quantity of the drug was, they could almost figure out when that drug arrived. Mm. So it was working its way into both sets of intelligence. But uh, uh, we did what we could. We were making a lot of cases. And uh, I actually, around that time, had a couple of DEA agents assigned to me because you don't want to give up the potential for, for the, for the uh, defendant to become an informant. And he could be of some value down the road. Uh, you used to take uh, uh, con convicted uh, to the narcotic narcotics camp in Lexington. Yeah. How, how did that change your outlook, perspective? Well, it it, it did because you know you you're in really close communication. If you're taking somebody down in a car, like we would take, you know, more often than not, three people at a time. And we're going to be two and a half days on the road, and so you get to talk to these guys, you know. And I'm I'm as curious as I could be. I I knew very little about drugs uh, during that time, and it didn't take me long uh, for me to start to act like I I really knew. And the young deputies, some of them thought I was a chemist when they first came <laughs> to work, but they it changed my outlook because I started asking 
those kind of questions, you know, like questions like, you know, people might ask today. Uh, I don't think legalizing uh, drugs is very smart. I never saw any of these people that were totally addicted to drugs that didn't start on something soft. Um, and it all has to do with the levels of tolerance. And, you know, and, and that's what addiction is. You know, you, you just can't overcome it. We're going to take a 60-second break. Sure. We're talking to Mike Busy. The book is called Adapt and Overcome. U.S. Marshal. We'll be right back in 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored. cell phone that we know you do <laughs> or you want to be on flash friday with uh, me well well then you better uh, turn your computers you know what a computer is right there yeah, <laughs> yes you do listen to outlaw radio every saturday 3b you won't regret it love you ladies where do they go for the app yeah how do they find the app Isn't it RadioLoyalty.com? Yeah, can find it could be. <laughs> oh, boy, here goes Matt. It's free. Go, boy, it is free. It is free. Yes, as long as you flash your movies on Flash Friday. Have another sip of wine, Tom. Bash. Yeah, you just punch in Outlaw Radio when you get to Radio Loyalty. Tom. I know. That's it. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear. I can tell because I looked in the mirror. This is the portion of the program where I get to hype my own stuff, <laughs> which, of course, thrills me. Latest book is Betrayal in Blue, true story of the scandal, one of many, rocking the NYPD. Written with Ken Urell, the second most corrupt cop, supposedly, in the history of the NYPD, and Frank C. Gerardo Jr. Uh, Ken kept a diary of all of his misdeeds, and when his house was raided, the, uh, the other cops who raided the place couldn't figure out what it was, and so they let him keep it. <laughs> Probably could have used it as a confession. We used it as the basis of our book, Betrayal in Blue, true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD and a guy between a rock and a hard place. If he, if he cooperates with the feds, well, then he gets labeled a rat. If he doesn't cooperate with the feds, his partner might get killed. What do you do? You find out when you read the book, Betrayal in Blue, available right now. When I get back to Mike Pizzi. Back to True Crime Uncensored. I've heard of it. With Burl Bear <laughs> and Howard Lapidus. Howard's not here. Howard's late. Where Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. Right here. He's right there. I'm right here. And uh, uh, Frank is here, too. Hi, Frank. <laughs> Our friend Frank Hagen dropped by. He's sitting here, too. Hey, I, well, most people don't remember, uh, and uh, this is in your book, that uh, in the 1970s, bombings were... were uh, You're off. Am I back? You're okay. Back. Bombings were quite common. That in the USA had over 1,900 domestic bombings uh, at, the, at that time period, the 1970s. We get all upset now if there's one... <laughs> That's a lot of bombs. Yep, yep. So how do you deal with that sort of stuff? Do you have to deal well, with a lot of bombs? I, we actually, I, I actually, my office was in a building that was bombed uh, in 1982. Um, but we were desensitized 
Um, I think the whole country was desensitized. Either that or we don't want to remember it. But there were bombings on a daily basis all over the country, you know, you know, it's all with basically around surrounding the Vietnam War. But in 1982, uh, we took a bomb that knocked out 37 plate glass windows. Uh, the bomb was left outside the building, but between a, a, a cement stack, a vent stack, and it took out 37 plate glass windows. Ooh. That was the moment that the courts and the judges decided that what we were trying to explain about security needed to be done. Before that, we, they wouldn't even allow us to put up those bomb barriers, <laughs> which we had been pleading for them to do. And after that, we had them on standby, uh, ordered anyway, so uh, they were delivered like the next day. But uh, yeah, it was uh, was uh, it changed it it changed everyone and everybody. Now it seems to be there's a problem of the U.S. Marshals getting credit for things. It must have pissed you off. Oh sure. <laughs> oh yeah. I, that kind of uh, that that kind of thing was really what burned me because um, look, we were not as well known. Well, we didn't have the publicity that a lot of other agencies had, but give us the credit for the things that we were doing, and uh, you know, don't don't try to push us off to the side. I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff that we did that uh, people never really knew, and uh, you know, we had like a lot of the thankless jobs. You know, uh, during the same time we're handling the anti-air piracy program, we start the witness security program. Huh which was so such a weapon, uh, and particularly against organized crime. But we would have led the unsung heroes of that one because, you know, we hid the people, we produced them when they had to be produced, but we did all of this with, with uh, uh, scotch tape, glue, uh, uh, spit, you know, you, you, you just... You ha there was no support mechanism to make this program really work. It was the men and women in the job that made it work. Well, you used to bring in Joe uh, Lipparelli, the informant from the uh, Joey Gallo murder case. Oh, yeah. Dressed as a postal worker. <laughs> well, if I, if I had to bring him into that particular building, remember that downtown uh, in Manhattan, uh, all of the courts and, and, and the jail and everything is all right there in one little pocket. And uh, how are you going to move a guy around? Uh, so so you, you're bringing him, he's got to get into the DA's office. And so just one day I said, grab him. Grab his postal guy's jacket and put a hat on him and gave him a mailbag and and we went to nobody really figured it out until we were past them. So, well, yeah, you had that I mean, case was, where uh, uh, crazy. I want to talk about the case regarding the body that was hidden by the mob. Right. I mean, they Which, they kept digging this thing up and moving it. But, uh, one of Luparelli's uh, one of Luparelli's main things was he could help them get rid of bodies. And so this particular guy was uh, somebody by, by the nickname of Wagon Wheels. Wagon Wheels had been killed, and they took his, his hands off, and they took his head off, and uh, they buried him. And then they kind of suspected that somebody was leaking information, so they dug him up, they moved him, and eventually he ended up in the water. Now, East River? Uh, no, it was in a small 
it was in a small body of water where they put a chain and some weight on them. And Luparelli had been involved with moving them a couple of times, and then we came an informant. Uh, of course, he gives up where he believes the body is, and the body's recovered. Now, <clears throat> if you have to believe this, while they took the hands and the head off, they left the shoes on, and the leg was only supported by the stocking, and the NYPD detectives actually matched his shoes to another pair of shoes just like it in his house. <laughs> That's how they made the ID. Amazing. It's unbelievable. Now, unbelievable. You, had, uh, you also had a situation I was reading in, the, in your great book, which is called Adapt and Overcome. Yeah, we also had, at that time had a lot of uh, hijackers, skyjackers, oh, taking yeah. planes. Uh uh, a perpetrator hijacking a plane out of Chicago shot and killed a passenger about to board the plane. He then instructed the pilot to take off, carrying only the crew to New York. Now, uh, how'd you get somebody on that plane? Well, in Chicago, they found the slightest built deputy who could fit through the cockpit window. <laughs> they shoved him up there Ouch. and got him into the, into the cockpit. When the plane takes off and it's on its way to New York... The, the uh, co-pilot's looking through the uh, the keyhole, the, the the eyepiece, and he says, "The the, the bad guy he shot and killed a, a passenger right in the, in, the, in the doorway of the aircraft. He's walking down the aisle. His back is to us." So the pilot says to the deputy, "Well, open the door and take a shot at him." So he does, and he sees the guy falling between the seats. But next thing you notice. Shots coming the other way. So now the deputy's got him pinned down, and he's got the deputy pinned down, and the plane lands in uh, New York Airport, and I'm I'm in charge of the ground detail, but I'm on my way out there. I got to, you know, he's a deputy marshal. I got to help him. So me and, and and my marshal at the time, Ben Butler, and uh, apparently when the plane came to rest, the crew opened a chute, and, and one of the last crew member going off the aircraft grabs the deputy and says, come on, and he pulls him off the aircraft. Well, at that moment in time, an FBI agent claims he got on the wing and he shot the guy, the bad guy, through the uh, small window in the aircraft, and that's what put him down. Um, anyway, we finally find our deputy, who they hid on us in some hotel room, and... Uh, we go to the hospital and we'll tell tell the FBI guys we'll take over. We'll guard the guy till he's arraigned, uh, which is usually the agent's job. And uh, with that, the doctor says, I retrieved the bullet. So we take the bullet as evidence. We take, he gets discharged, and we go in and we're filing the complaint of air piracy and murder. And the FBI, of course, went crazy. Uh, they wanted the credit, to right? Try to try to be uh, Solomon, and you know he's going to split the baby. So let the two of us do it. So th that's one time we didn't get cut out of the action. Ah, we want, <laughs> you, Frank, you got to. I have a question. When they checked the ballistics, on when the bullet, they checked the ballistics on the bullet, was it actually the what, FBI? Was it the FBI guy or was it your guy? Nobody wanted to test the ballistics. <laughs> no one wanted to test the ballistics, huh? <laughs> They just wanted to take the credit whether it was theirs or not. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, just think about that Good shot question. from the wing through the, 
to the side window into the air. I mean, no. Oh, come on. <laughs> Yeah. Was there a hole in the in the window of the airplane? <laughs> I don't know. I was in a lab near the aircraft after that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Everybody wants to get the credit. You know, uh, and I don't. You know, don't mind. You know, if it's a hundred percent. But you know, we got a guy up in the air in a shootout, and you're just going to move us to the side, put him in a hotel room, and that's it. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, room that's service is not me. a bad deal. <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, 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 they they now, every crumb. Now, what about women in the marshal service? They didn't used to have them. Well, yeah, and that was it was a hardship all the way around because they would take the clerical people and have them go with us. You know, that would be sort of your guard, uh, your assistant. But you know, we needed the female deputies, and of course, there wasn't any real move on back in those days and so it was a blessing when they finally decided to uh, to put the women on and uh, w one in particular that we had who was an administrative officer ended up as a supervisor as a matter of fact I uh, before I finished writing the book I had sent her some notes uh, about uh, what I my thoughts and she was like well you got to tell them about all the prejudice about getting us on this job. I said, well, I, I, as the book got printed, I said, the editors kind of cut all of that out. I guess it was a little boring. But that that's a book she could write, you know. But I it just, look, we were happy when they got here. When they finally arrived, we actually were very overprotective, most of us old-timers, uh -huh. and really didn't know how to how to really deal with them, you know, you're going to break in a door. Uh, that's a brute force issue. Uh, uh, so you're going to send somebody around the back? Who do you send, the woman by herself, or does she help you break the door down? Either way, you got problems. Yeah. Either way, you got a problem. So finally, the problem gets resolved when we started getting uh, Halligan tools and, uh, and door spreaders, and so that took care of the brute force in the front, you know. So um, you're you're talking about prejudice. You were on the, a bus from boot camp, the Marines to uh, the, the your base, right? Uh, what happened there? It changed your perspective. Well, you know, I never realized that here we are in uniform. We just graduated from Paris Island. We're on our way to to advanced infantry in Camp Geiger, North Carolina. The bus driver pulls in. We're all in uniform. I think there were three black Marines with us. And there's a sign on the door, no blacks allowed. It was like I, I, was, I was in shock. I never, it never really hit me that there was such a thing. You know, uh, I, I mean, I later, you know, we lived in pockets up in the north. You know, we all lived in our own neighborhoods. So you never kind of saw that kind of thing. But it was kind of like the law in the south. It was pretty hard to swallow. Anyway, I, to, 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 to help get by that day, I went in and bought them some stuff and brought it out to the bus. Right. What neighborhood were you uh, in Brooklyn? I lived in a, in a neighborhood called uh, Bensonhurst, which yeah, uh, yeah, with that song. Ralph Brandon <laughs> used to talk a lot about. <laughs> um, it's very right on the border of Coney Island. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you, you probably bumped into our friend Frank there several times and didn't arrest him. <laughs> Who's Frank? Who's Frank's Frank? sitting here next to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you sent a copy of your book to uh, everyone that's in it. Did you get any responses back? Uh, but some people did. Uh, some people actually uh, sent me some uh, nice comments. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to read you one uh, by. Uh, by uh, one fellow, and I'm gonna have it here. Anyway, he said that he always felt like he was part of a team when he first got on the job. Oh, here it is. Um, I'll make this short. Uh, uh, thank you for sending me. It brought back a lot of, of memories. It was a pleasure having you as my boss from the day you hired me, and I always felt that I was part of the team. Even though the days often went into nights, it was usually fun because it meant we were all working together on some caper or another. Your management style was always one that I uh, that I uh, admired. You always placed importance on high morale and unity in the office, which led to high enthusiasm for the job. Mm. And then he ended by saying, "Don't see that really see that anymore." Oh, that's sad. Well, if you want to see it now, buy the book. Yeah, What's it called? <laughs> the book is called Adapt and Overcome by U.S. Marshal Mike Pizzi. It's a fantastic book. I really enjoyed reading it, Mike. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. This is a fun. I'd love to have you back. Your stories are great. <laughs> thank you. Well, I just want to make a point. It was started out as 400 pages, and the editor decided to get it down to 216. <laughs> that sounds well, familiar. Volume Maybe two. one too many stories. Yeah. Volume two coming out. Volume two, yeah. Thanks a lot, Mike Busy, U.S. Okay. Marshal, Adapt and Overcome. Hey, uh, Burl. What? What's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live in the Lighten Up Lounge on U.S. Radio Outlaw. <laughs> Outlaw Radio USA. Outlaw something. OutlawRadioLive.com. Nicely done.